Today we continue our series, Swimming Upstream, Christians and Culture, looking at Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. And today, as we've heard before, he talks about the difference and how they relate to the Roman Empire in which they live. Listen to these words. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to abolish things that are so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In contrast, God is why you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In order, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. A year ago this past week, a bunch of us returned from Italy. It was the Bible and art tour that we'd been talking about for a long time, or you may remember I nicknamed it the Bible and art and wine and pasta and gelato tour. <laughs> and it's possible we will do it again a year from now, so stay tuned for that. The first night and the last night, we had a big feast where everybody was together, but most nights in Rome and in Florence, people went out in pairs with others, that kind of thing. And on one of those nights, Carla and Dave invited me and my wife, along with a couple of others, to a fancy dinner, seven-course Italian feast. Thankfully, each course was very small, and there was a little bit of time in between. But eating in Italy, is an event. We were in that restaurant, I think, about four hours. It was amazing. The conversation, of course, went all over the place, but I will never forget one particular thing we talked about. It came up naturally, but it was the question of how are Christians, the church, different from other groups, organizations in the world? And the way it came up was someone said something about friends of theirs whose children are in competitive soccer who travel every weekend and therefore miss church. And so the question was, well, how is, how is growing up in competitive soccer different from growing up in the church? And someone suggested, well, if your spouse is in the hospital, the church rallies to your aid. Someone else countered with, I think soccer parents do that too. Apparently, soccer moms know how to make casseroles the way church people do, right? But do you hear the question? How is the church as a group different from others? How is the church different from the VFW where veterans find fellowship and support and visit with each other? How is it different from a book club where you exchange ideas and develop relationships? Or if those are too small, how is it different from a concert or a chief's game? How is the church different? When Paul begins the letter, he addresses it to the church of God in Corinth. They may well be the church of God, but they live in Corinth, which means they walk the same streets as everybody else, pay the same taxes, shop at the same market stalls. How is it any different? 
in what is probably the most famous commencement address ever given, which I realize is a very low bar because commencement addresses are forgettable, David Foster Wallace, the writer, began with a parable. It's not original with him, but he did popularize it. Here's what he told the undergrads. Two fish are swimming along when an older fish swims by and says, how's the water, boys, and just keeps on going. And then the two fish look at each other and go, what's water? Well, his address was called, this is water. And it's a metaphor for the culture. Fish swim in water. That's their existence. We, culture, we would say, is the air we breathe. Everybody's in it. How then, if everybody is in it, are we any different? Here's a story that might help. Ten years ago, something like that, I was invited to do some lectures at a seminary in Seoul, South Korea, and then to stay over on Sunday and preach at one of those huge mega churches. On Sunday morning, they had a limo pick me up with a driver. You've never done that, so that's clearly <laughs> a different culture. But everything, of course, naturally happened in Korean. They prayed in Korean. They sang hymns in Korean. I even, well, sort of, preached in Korean. I would preach, and then the pastor would stand up, and he would translate every couple of paragraphs, something like that. Of course the whole thing happened in Korean, but, but there were things that were different. Like when the senior minister and I came from back to enter the place, the, you know, kind of beside the choir, I didn't know this was going to happen, but he slipped off his dress shoes, and there were some slippers there, like bedroom slippers. It was kind of a nod to the notion of you're standing on holy ground. Well, they hadn't told me that was going to happen. Well, I could slip off my shoes, but there was no way my feet were going to go in those slippers. So here's the point. Of course, everything they did was in Korean. Everything we do is in English. That's the air we breathe. But how is it different from the culture? In this case, Paul seems to suggest it would be socioeconomic. Did you hear it? He says, you know, not many of you were born rich, powerful, connected, the wise people of the world, which is to say that's what they were used to in the society. Not everybody, but there were elites who were well-born and connected. Some of the earliest critics of the Christian movement kind of it's just the dregs of society. They're not the sharpest bunch. You hear it? It's like, well, Jesus started with tax collectors and fishermen, and Paul's churches weren't much better off. That's one way to read it, but it misses a very important little phrase in the text. Not many of you were, which is to say some of them were. Some of them were in the church born of power and connection. Paul will actually at one point mention a person who was in city government in Corinth. He will talk about how there were people in the church who were wealthy enough to have a place that the church could meet in, in their home. Two years ago, I was at the annual meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature. Thousands of Bible nerds, I mean scholars from all over the world, they come, we do papers, presentations. One of the sessions I went to was absolutely brilliant. It was a celebration of a new book 
not the kind you want to read, 350 pages of dense text, followed by 150 pages of bibliography and endnotes. But this book is so brilliant. What the guy does, John Kloppenborg, what he does is he looked at the records we have of all the groups in the cities of the Mediterranean world. And what he concludes is that the Christian ones, pretty much like all the others, pretty much like all the others, all the groups, Christian or not, they had membership roles. All the groups had dues that you paid. We would eventually in the church call those tithes and offerings. All of them had these meals that they would eat together, and all of them, they made connections that might help them in business. The Christians, the church, pretty much like everybody else, with one exception. After 500 pages, he says, there was one way they were different. And in some ways, I think it's the answer still. They were diverse. They really were diverse. Some of them were wealthy, but some of them were poor. And whereas the other groups that, that, that met in the empire, they were uniform. They either were in the same occupation or the same socioeconomic status, or it was all men. But the church was diverse. They had men and women and slave and free and Jew and Gentile. Everybody gathered. That was so radical that in some ways the empire found it threatening. This could undo the social fabric, you know, if we let everybody mix together. I don't know, did you, did you go to any graduation parties this year? It doesn't even have to be a graduation party, but think of a social gathering in which there are people you do not know, but you're striking up conversations. Does it not seem that we are always looking for commonality? Like, if I'm having to do that kind of thing, I'm thinking, okay, does this person play golf? Do they like wine? Do they drink, you know, do they read books? What, what, what is it? What do we have in common? What part of town do you live in? We're looking for the commonality. The, the competitive soccer team, all the kids play soccer. All the parents are soccer parents, and they're all at least well enough off to travel. This is the way we've engineered the world. But there's this great phrase Another little phrase in the text. Paul begins by saying, consider your own call. That's religious language. That's something God does. This was God's idea to put together a group that was diverse, even though everybody else had huddled with their own. None of us would have come up with this idea. We would have done what we do at those parties. If the history of Christianity had been up to me, I'd be a member of golf church. <laughs> We'd all be talking about what happened on the PGA Tour this week, and, and Jesus, but you know. <laughs> you'd be a member of quilting church, or maybe TikTok church, or grandkid church. You, you, you hear it? One of the earliest stories in the Bible, it's like the fourth or fifth story, is about this group of people that all spoke the same language, had the same words. Nobody spoke Korean and somebody else English. They were all the same. And they said, we should build a city, big tower. We, we'll just stay right here. But God had other plans. God 
mixed up the languages and scattered them throughout the whole earth so there would be this incredible, diverse group. So a year ago, when we were on that tour, and if we go again, we went to the Sistine Chapel. It's breathtaking. It really is. It's smaller than this, but you have to go and see that ceiling that Michelangelo painted. It is just amazing. That morning before we went, the docent and I had talked about another painting by Michelangelo on the back wall that we were going to talk about. And, and it's, it's called The Last Judgment, and it's basically the biblical scene of these poor souls being consigned to hell and some to beatific heaven. And Michelangelo, like a lot of artists, he sort of worked in real people into some of those. And so his friends and patrons, they were going to heaven, but some of his enemies, uh-oh, they were going to hell. And it's, it's this common trope throughout the history of Christianity. We divide, we divide. If you ever get to go, first thing you will be shocked at is how crowded it is. You can't move. You just find your way into the middle and you stand there and you just look up and it'll hurt your neck after a while, trust me. So let me give you a little tip. Find your way to the edge because there's this bench built in all along the edge and you can sit, which will be a little easier on you. You won't be quite as crowded and it'll be easier to look up. But don't forget to do something else, to look out. Because there's this incredible group of people. They're from all over the world. They speak different languages. And some of them are tall, and some of them are short, and some of them are gay, and some are straight, and some are guys, and some are... Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. That, as it turns out, that's God's masterpiece.